All right, y'all. Today is a uh, very special day. We have, um, there's not many guests that I have on that are absolute bucket list guests. Uh, I know we had Ramit Sadie on before I got into podcasting, long before that, when I had just retired and never thought about podcasting as a career choice. I loved listening to podcasts. And in 2014, I retired from the UFC. I started listening to a lot more podcasts because I had a lot more time available. And uh, of course, that included largely and still does to this day, the Tim Ferriss Show and the Joe Rogan Experience. And I had heard on the Tim Ferriss Show that year, Dominic D'Agostino, Dr. Peter Atia, I guess Dom's also a doctor, and uh, Jim Fadiman, who's a doctor as well. There you go, three doctors. I heard those three guys and was blown the fuck away by each of them. And between Dr. Dominic D'Agostino and Dr. Peter Atia, that's what fueled me to want to get into ketosis and really start diving into longevity and cognitive function and how we heal the brain through fasting and other really dope mechanisms. So to say this guy's been on my radar uh, is a fucking massive understatement. And I got to meet Peter out on a hunting trip in Hawaii, which was also uh, a bucket list experience and just truly one of the best uh, weeks of my life. And uh, we bonded. We had a great time. We got to know each other. I can say he's a friend, which is huge <laughs> in my mind because uh, he's somebody that I've looked up to and learned so much from for a very long time. And um, I continue to learn from him. You know, as anybody who's listened to his podcast, The Drive, will tell you, uh, I think the only complaint would be that there's just so much fucking gems, so much information. It's hard to take notes if you're driving your car or running when you're listening to the podcast. But I just have a wealth of respect and love for Peter. Uh, he had us over at his house in San Diego. We got to get dialed in on the bow. He brought out uh, JR, a buddy of ours that was hunting with us and uh, works at the local archery shop down there. And he just dialed us in. It was the first time I could shoot accurately at 60 plus yards. All that to say, uh, I am so fucking thrilled to have Peter T on the show today. I jumped on his podcast as well, The Drive, that I think that'll release in a month or two, but I couldn't be happier with this one. Uh, I know you guys are going to get a lot of it. Have your fucking notepad ready because he means business when he's talking and he's got a lot of amazing things to talk about. We cover all sorts of stuff, a lot of things he has not talked about on podcasts before and uh, a lot that you may have heard that I, I needed some clarity on. I needed clarity on the NAD stuff. I needed clarity on some different things and um, he, uh, he was able to illustrate everything beautifully. I learned a lot in this one. I know you will too. So thank you guys for listening. There's a few ways you can support this show, one of which is to click subscribe. Click subscribe so you never miss a podcast. We're releasing two a week now. For the rest of this year, there's going to be two episodes a week. Every Monday and Friday they come out. If you hit subscribe, you will not miss a beat and you'll be there. Uh, one of the ways we grow the show is through word of mouth and through also leaving a nice five-star rating that tells other people the show is dope. If you believe it is so, please take the time. It'll take seconds. You don't even have to leave a comment. But if you do leave a comment, I might read it in one of these intros. So leave us a comment and a five-star rating, and I might read you uh, and say your name and give you uh, brownie points in the world of uh, podcasting gold. What else can we do? We can support us by checking out our sponsors. Our sponsors mean the world of this show. I travel to all of my guests that cost money. Oftentimes, I'm flying out my podcast producer, and we got to stay in Airbnbs and all the other reasons the show costs cash. Uh, but point is, uh, you don't have to give me cash. I'm not asking for money through a Patreon account. I am asking you to support our sponsors and we've got some dope ones. We've got some sponsors that have really been game changers in my life. Uh, one of which being Wabe. Wabe is 
the very best CBD I've ever used. It tastes absolutely phenomenal. It's 100% organic. They use 100% CO2 extractions. There's no nasty solvents or fillers or binders, no chemicals, no pesticides or herbicides. It's just a phenomenal product. It tastes good and you fucking feel it. And that's something, obviously I'm working on it. That's something I think about. I can feel alpha brain. I can feel beta alanine. I can feel different products working. And I like that better than the, than the products that I take where I have to take your word for it. Even if there's science backing it, I like to feel the products I take. And Wave CBD is something that helps me sleep better at night. It helps lower inflammation. A lot of these old ticky-tack injuries I have from fighting in football seem to vanish when I'm steady with the CBD dose. And uh, it's just a great product. So you go to wave.com, that's W-A-A-Y-B.com slash Kyle, and you'll get 10% off. Check them out. Also check out my boy, Mind Bullet, Mark Bell's company. They are making a very cool and unique tea leaf extract from Mitrianga speciosa. It's from Southeast Asia, and it is the ultimate game changer for pre-work and pre-workout. It's something I take on a daily basis. I'll have one to two capsules in the morning and one to two capsules before I work out, and you can grind through anything on it. Again, it gives me energy, but it also helps lift my mood. There's something about that. It's almost like a good cup of coffee, but it works on different receptors in the brain where I really feel better taking it. So check out MindBullet at mindbullet.com slash kingsboo. That's K-I-N-G-S-B-U. And you can get 20 fucking percent off. So get yourself a bottle. Let me know how you feel. Hit me up on Instagram, folks. I want you guys to write us after these shows. So always, please, uh, I don't check DMs, but just hit me up on Instagram. Let me know what you think of the show. If you have questions, I will answer it. If I post about my mom dying and you write me a question about one of the shows, I'm going to answer your fucking question on that post that has nothing to do with that question because I don't check my DMs. So please do that. Let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what you learned. Let us know what you think of the sponsors because they are awesome. And I hand select these myself. Also, don't forget about on it. As I mentioned, Alpha Brain, we've got a dope ass new product, Total NO. It is my absolute favorite product pre-workout alongside Mind Bullet. It's a great nitric oxide product that has nothing bad in it as you become accustomed to here at Onnit. Nothing fake, nothing artificial, no nasty carbohydrates or anything else that's going to spike blood sugar. It's just a great way to get a good pump and to recover faster. Check out Total NO. You can go to onnit.com slash Kyle and get 10% off any supplement we sell and any food product we sell as well. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Please remember, let me know what you think. Click subscribe and I love you all. We're clapped in and I'm quite giddy. You got Dr. Peter Atia here in front of me. We're at your we're in your guest house where we've been staying for the past night. We've been shooting some bows already. And we're getting ready to dive in. So it's an absolute fucking pleasure to be here, brother. Oh man, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here and to be with you. Awesome. Well, let's get some background. I like I like opening up the show with the uh, the backstory of childhood, what life was like growing up for you. <laughs> you can go as deep or as shallow as you want into the waters because I know that's a loaded one. Yeah. Um, I grew up in, I grew up outside of Toronto. Um, and your parents are Egyptian. My correct? parents are Egyptian, came to Canada in uh, the 60s and uh, yeah, grew up, uh, you know, sort of in a, in the, the people think Toronto is a glamorous city. I think it is, except for it has five boroughs, but one of the boroughs really sucks. Yeah, where you that's the one up. I grew up in. <laughs> and even my wife, who grew up in Baltimore, thinks it's disgusting, which is like, that's that says it right? all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I lived in Canada till through college. And so I've now, I think I actually just 
this year eclipsed the 50% of my life in Canada versus out of Canada. Wow. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm truly of two countries now, I suppose. You got dual citizenship? Yeah. Very cool. Two passports. <laughs> so talk about growing up and when you got into boxing, because I, I was, I was blown away by this and your wealth of knowledge in boxing, I think is, is on par with anybody that I've met in MMA or boxing. Well, it, 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 thank you. I appreciate that. It's probably only true until the nineties. Okay. So I think I know nothing about boxing today. I mean, I know not, not you know, I, I know as much as a casual person would know today, but, um, yeah, so I started boxing when I was 13 and so there was a fight between marvelous Marvin Hagler and Tommy Hearns. And when I saw that fight, which was in April of 1985, that was, I just realized like, that's the guy I want to be, you know, Marvin Hagler. Um, and most people today would still regard that as one of the greatest fights in boxing history. And I think most people would say that the first round of that fight, um, would be certainly on most people's short list for the greatest rounds in any boxing match. And I think of that round as sort of a metaphor for life. I, I have a friend who's going through a very difficult lawsuit right now. And um, I sort of said, look, that, that, that lawsuit that you're in, you're on the right side of the, you're on the right side of this thing. So you're Hagler, you will win this thing. But right now you are in the first round of that fight. And I mean, Hagler was almost killed in the first round of that fight. Certainly in the first 90 seconds of that fight, Hearns almost took his head off his shoulders. Um, and, you know, so I talked, I was talking to him the next day after that little pep talk. And he was like, dude, I went back and watched that. He's also a boxing fan. He's like, I went back and watched that three times. And he's like, you're so right. That is exactly what this is like. I just got to get, you know, it's eight rounds of, or eight minutes of, you know, sheer destruction. So anyway, seeing that fight, I just, I fell in love with Hagler and, and then also once I started boxing, I realized I didn't have any natural ability. You know, there are some people like the first time they get in the ring, they just have blinding speed or their power is staggering. Dynamite so, in their hands. Right yeah, they the just something like that. Yeah. I didn't have any of that stuff. I mean, I was just like probably slower than average, probably hit a little harder than average, probably had a slightly above average chin, all of those intangibles. But I also sensed that Hagler wasn't supernatural on any dimension. But what he was supernatural in was discipline. I mean, that guy trained all the time. You know, most fighters would spend six weeks in training camp and they'd be out of shape the rest of the time. Hegler was just never out of shape. And I think what you saw in the Hearns fight was this is a guy who, I mean, Hearns hit harder. There's no question about it. But, and Hearns was faster. Um, and Hearns was bigger and lankier and had a you know longer reach and had all of these advantages. But Hagler was just in better shape. And, and he had the best chin, I think, in the history of boxing. C certainly, you could make the case that there are five boxers with the greatest chin. Hagler's one of them. So I was like, okay, that's the guy I want to mimic. That's the guy I want to emulate. I, and and that's, that was sort of the beginning of it. When did you, and this we'll, we'll have to skip around here, but when did you make the realization uh, that you were no longer going to box and you were going to focus on medicine? Well, it actually wasn't medicine, but so when I finished 12th grade. So now I'd been boxing for, you know, I think that would be five years. Um, and, and also doing martial arts. So I was doing, um, kickboxing, Taekwondo boxing, they all sort of flowed into one. And, um, I just sort of had an epiphany at that. So up until that point, all I wanted to do was become a professional fighter. Um, which obviously, you know, is super upsetting to my parents because immigrants that 
leave a bad place to come to a better place, have this vision of their, you know, kid doing something like going to college or whatever. And because I didn't want to do that, they were, they were very upset and they just, you know, they couldn't understand like my maniacal training in high school. I was training six hours a day. Um, but then I had this sort of epiphany at the end of 12th grade, which was, it, I mean, it's actually a kind of interesting story where a teacher who I really liked, um, and that I couldn't say that of many teachers in high school at the time, I was generally a mediocre student who just got into a lot of trouble. Um, and this teacher called me in one morning and he's like, Hey, I want to, can you come in in the morning? And I thought, Oh, you know, what did I do now? Um, and he said, look, you know, I heard you're not going to college. And I said, that's right. In Canada, we say university, by the way. Canada, <laughs> you're not going to university now. Yeah, I said, that's right. And he, and, and I really thought he was going to sort of lean in with a huge lecture, but he didn't, you know, instead he said, I, I get that man. Like I really get pursuing your, your dream. Um, he said, you know, when I was your age, I really wanted to play in the NHL. Like that was the only thing that mattered to me. Um, and ultimately, you know, I didn't, and I did this, but don't let anybody take your dream away. But I just want you to know, I, I actually think you have a real talent for mathematics. And I think that you should at least consider that. And, and when his name is Woody and when Woody kind of planted that seed in me, I think that was the thin end of the wedge that had me realize within the next couple of months that, you know, probabilistically I was not going to be the middleweight champion of the world. And boxing is a brutal sport. You know, you can be the 20th best pitcher in the world and you have an amazing career that spans 18 years and you'll make tens of millions of dollars. If you're the 18th best middleweight in the world, you were brain damaged and broke. I mean, it's, that, that's just an, it's a brutal reality. And I think I realized like there's a chance I'm not going to be the best ever. <laughs> so everything else is really a, is, 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 is sort of not a good outcome. So, so then I just, that's when I decided, okay, I got to really shift gears big time. I've spent the last five years exclusively focusing on this one thing and I've spent no time focusing on this other thing. And now I need to do a 180. So as strange as it sounds, I did a total 180. I mean, overnight, it's not that I stopped exercising and training, but I wasn't training six hours a day. Now I was just sort of training for the sake of exercise, maybe a couple hours a day. And then all of that energy went into basically catching up on all the stuff I'd missed because now I had one year to basically try to get into college. And so that's what I did is just kind of busted my ass to sort of change gears and go and study math and engineering, which is what Woody did himself. Okay. Um, so that was the next chapter. So then I went off, went to the same university he went to. I mean, he was like really my, you know, such, just such a, a, a huge influence in my life. Um, four years later when I did graduate, um, with the degree in math and a degree in mechanical engineering in Canada, there's a ceremony where engineers get a ring made out of iron. And the reason for that is there was a bridge that had collapsed in Quebec many years ago. And it was a horrible engineering error. And they mm. would take the iron from that actual bridge that had collapsed and they made these rings that were shaped in a, in a really beautiful, uh, distinct manner. And every engineer in Canada wears that iron ring on the pinky of their working hand as a reminder of the hubris and carelessness that led to such a devastating error. Um, I believe that by the time we were getting our rings, they were now stainless steel and not iron. <laughs> but it's the they weren't coming from the original metal. bridge, yeah. <laughs> but it's the ceremony is you have to be presented to it by someone who themselves had an iron ring. So of oh, course, wow. Woody came from Toronto all the way out to give me my ring. Um, 
And then I had kind of this other change of heart, which at the very end of that, as I was just getting ready to start a PhD in aerospace engineering, that um, I actually wanted to do medicine. So then I had to sort of putz around for a year and teach calculus to the college students because by that point I was, um, you know, I'd been involved in sort of redesigning the calculus curriculum at the at the university and um, and then take my prerequisites for med school and take the MCAT and do all that business. Uh, but I've al I always stayed very close to Woody until he died. Actually, uh, he died very prematurely, uh, 2013, 2014. Um, but I always sort of credit him for being one of the most important um, figures that, you know, I don't know. I sometimes wonder, like, you know, what, what would my life have been if I didn't sort of run into him? And, and there, were, there, were, there were two other teachers I had in high school that I think were great people. And they, they sort of saw through my issues and realized that, you know, I, I could do well if I applied myself. Yeah, I can count on one hand the people uh, in my life that, that came from academics or coaches that really saw more in me than I saw in myself. These people don't get enough credit. I mean, I, I, I'm back in touch, very close touch to one of them who's my who was my English teacher in 11th and 12th grade. And we, I mean, I just talked to her on the phone like two weeks ago and um, I'm writing a book right now and I've actually asked her to help me with one of the chapters to, because I, you know, it's sort of about stuff in my childhood and I feel I feel like she would be the most able to help me navigate how to tell a story that is a hard story to tell and it's just been amazing to be back in touch with her um, because again I and she and she's told me she's like look I I didn't know what was going on with you but I knew you know there was more to you than the front page story which was kind of a shithead <laughs> I had that front page story for quite a bit of my life, for sure. Well, let's talk, let's shift gears to swimming because uh, I, di I didn't even realize this about you. We were on our hunting trip in Hawaii and uh, somebody mentioned to me that you didn't even start swimming until your 30s. Is yeah. that correct? 31, yeah. And then like you, what, what, what's the three island swim that you pulled off in Hawaii? Well, I didn't pull it off. I wanted to. Yeah, I wanted to swim from Maui to Lanai, to Molokai, back to Maui. So, and and now remember how we flew there. So you mm -hmm. can sort of see what that, like you can yeah. see why that makes a beautiful triangle that's about 30 miles. Um, the problem with said triangle is nothing is there to buffer those waves. See, at least when you swim between Maui and Lanai, um, you, you're only sort of unbuffered east to west, but north south, there's a bit of a buffer because you have two huge islands. So it's more the wind that you're facing when it's blowing west, uh, west and east. Um, with the triangle, one, you don't have that. Two, to swim 30 miles is going to take, you know, 15 to 18 hours. And you really don't want to be on that water from about noon to 9 noon to 8 p.m. you got to be off that water it's just the winds are brutal so you'd have to start the swim at sort of 10 p.m. but the problem is I couldn't find a boat captain who was willing to start at 10 p.m. because of the tiger sharks because you have to put these little glow sticks on your bathing suit so the boat can see you because it's otherwise it's super dark out there so and then I'd done I'd done more swims than I can count in the Pacific Ocean like here in California with those glow sticks in the middle of the night because you're always trying to basically optimize or least amount of wind possible. The wind makes these swims really tough. So, but you know, you have to sort of go by what the boat captain wants. They're really the one in charge. And I, I found a great captain, but he said, look, dude, 
putting a glow stick on you at midnight in Hawaii in the, in the time of year you're going to do that swim. I mean, I might as well put chum in the water. You know, it's just gonna, <laughs> I'm just going to be bringing tiger sharks to you. So he said, we should start at 5 a.m. and be done with it. And I was like, well, if we're starting at 5 a.m. There's no way we can do that. That's like, it's just guaranteed to fail. So then we decided to shift to do Maui to Lanai and back, which had not been done. Um, or at least it's funny, we thought it had never been done. And so when I did that swim, you know, the record book said for quite a while, first person to ever do it. And then very interestingly, six or seven years later, somebody found an obscure record of a, of a woman who had done it before and somehow it had gone complete, her swim had just gone completely unnoticed. Wow. So, yeah, <laughs> which was cool. I mean, I was glad that my swim, and then there was another woman who went and swam it after me whose claim then became the first woman to do this swim. But it was, I think her, I forget her name, Meredith something, but her swim then became, I think in some ways, sort of the motivation for people to go back and figure out, no, this other person had actually done it first. That's cool. Yeah. And, and that's, marathon swimming is sort of a weird cultish, cult is the wrong word, but it's just kind of a weird, obscure sport where there are a handful of swims you want to do because they're just the swims that, you know, the big swims. But, um, but then people are always looking for something that's never been done. And so, um, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. it's one of those fun you get things. That little feather in the cap. Yeah, for sure. yeah, yeah. So, when did your love affair with racing start? And you've you've already you've published the podcast you did about Senna. Yeah, correct? all right. We'll link to that in the show notes. For yeah, people, yeah. I think it's it's awesome. I mean, I just grew up really enjoying motorsports in the sense that I loved cars. I mean, I just loved cars growing up. Um, we never had a nice car, <laughs> but I remember there was like you know a crappy old used car place, you know, five miles from our house that like had, old, you know, the guy used to repair old Porsches and I just loved it. And, you know, loved seeing nice cars, loved the sound of nice cars, had posters of cars all over. Um, in Canada, motorsports pretty popular. You don't have NASCAR, but Formula One and IndyCar were quite popular. Um, there are actually a pretty couple of pretty good drivers that came out of Canada. Probably the most famous of all is a guy named Gilles Villeneuve, who some would argue is the greatest Formula One driver that never won a championship. He died uh, in 1982 before he had a chance to win one. Uh, his son, of course, would go on to win the Formula One uh, World Championship in 1997. And there were a couple of good um, IndyCar racers as well. So I don't know. It's just sort of like I just just loved it. But I didn't really get into it as for myself as far as driving until uh i want to say i didn't i don't i got my license and my racing license in 2013 okay it's so a pretty recent i mean yeah. you know whatever that is six years ago and that was more just uh you know it's really fun to watch this but i want to do it too and i didn't get my license to then spend all of my time racing because i understood the time commitment of that is probably just more than i'd be willing to put into it um you know the races take four days just like the races would take that you're watching where there's a practice and a qualifying and a race and stuff. But yeah, I was just sort of hooked the moment I started. I was like, oh yeah, this just takes it to a whole new level. Now my appreciation for watching it has gone even higher. Um, and you know, I just, I, I hope one day my kids want to do it too. My daughter really loves it actually. That's like, awesome. like for her birthday party this year, she wanted that we're just going to do go-kart racing for her birthday. Um, and she just, you know, she rides the sim like she drives the simulator that you were in yesterday. So, and you train with a coach on that. Line. Yeah. So my coach, Thomas Merrill, who's really great, you know, great coaches. I'm sure you, 
can relate to this and all the stuff you've done. Great coaches aren't just telling you what to do. They're telling you what you should feel when you do it correctly. And that to me is like, like, that's why I know I'm not a good coach. Like I, it's very hard for me to coach people because I have a hard time articulating what you're supposed to feel when you do something correctly. But, you know, I've been working with Thomas for five or six years now, and it's incredible. And the simulator is a very big part of that because we can do it any day. So we use this software program called iRacing that, as you saw yesterday, I mean, it's, you're there. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it, you don't realize you're playing a computer. Um, and Thomas is in the car functionally with me because he's, he, we set up a joint session. So we're, we're doing this thing together and, you know, he's in the headset talking to me the whole time and I can talk back and he, we can take turns. Like I can quote unquote, get out of the car, get in the car, watch him do it. We can lead, follow, have two cars in so we can practice some more technical stuff. I mean, it's just, it's really amazing. It's such a technical sport. And, and, and that way it's sort of like archery, right? People say, why are you so obsessed with archery and race car driving? And I think they have something in common, which is they're very easy to understand, like the concept of what you're doing. And within 10 minutes, you can take an average person and have them do something. Like you could take a reasonably competent athletic person and in, you know, whatever, 10, maybe 10 is an exaggeration, but within 30 minutes, you could have them shoot a compound bow. So yeah. they could get a feel for what it is. But then you will spend the rest of your life trying to become dudley yeah right yeah so yep anybody can do it it's a lifetime to become john dudley uh similarly in 30 minutes like i could put you into a race car get, teach you you know this is how you shift up this is how you shift down this is how you you know you brake throttle turn around this way blah, blah blah great and you could drive a couple laps then have you sit in the car while a professional drives it and go, okay, it would take you the rest of your life to become Lewis Hamilton. And you won't, just like I'll never become John Dudley. But but the pursuit of that is so incredible. And once you dial into that, you start to you'll you'll take that one degree of improvement every couple of months. And that becomes for some people, at least for people with my personality, that's that's like heroin. Yeah. It's the ultimate obsession. Yeah. I think they talk uh I know I've talked about this recently a lot, but obviously flow states are are like a big term getting thrown around these days and uh, between the book Stealing Fire and previous to that, The Rise of Superman, like it's it's becoming better known, I think. But um, what was that guy, Mikhail? Um, there was a guy who wrote the I, I, the book I always thought of as the original flow book. They reference him. I forget. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget. I, I have that book. I read it okay. like 10 years ago. I'll have I'll have uh, Ryan Giles pull that up for people. Yeah, yeah. We'll stick it in the show notes. It's it's something like to just to go back to what you're talking about, like you can say the nuts and bolts, like, yeah, if you challenge yourself and maybe your life's on the line or, or it's, there's some fear element, you might rise into that state of flow because, but it has to be just right. You know, and I was just chatting with, uh, Andrew Huberman about this. Like if you're overly qualified for something like if Michael Jordan is playing an eighth grader in basketball, there's not enough challenge there to put him in flow. It's not fun. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you have some degree of expertise and you match that with the challenge or slightly harder than you're, than you're good at, then that's an easy way to drop into flow. But more importantly than that, like why the fuck flow? It's the feeling behind it, right? It's yeah. the feeling of timelessness. It's the feeling of all your fucking troubles just washing away. And that's something I first gathered with archery. I was like, this is active meditation. I'm not thinking about a damn thing else. And if I am, I suck, right? So like just yep. to dial in like that, Let's chat about archery here. You got into this uh, a couple years ago, 2016. Uh, 
I got my first bow in 2017, actually. Okay. Yep. The winter, like January, February, something like that of 2017. What was the draw from that? Well, so six months earlier, one of my best friends, um, Tim, you, you know, you know, mm -hmm. Tim Ferriss. Um, do you know Tim? I know you guys are both in Austin, but do you guys? We've, 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 uh, you've partaken fun? in some things before and Very well. had a bonding experience. So good, yeah. Good. So you know Tim Tim's well. So Tim, um, basically just kind of got me interested in it through his own experience. So he was getting ready to do a trip, which this is actually funny, came full circle. He was going on a trip with Jonathan Hart. Oh, no shit. Now at the time, even if he mentioned that, I wouldn't have known who that, and I'm sure he didn't say who he was going on a trip with because it wouldn't have meant anything to me. So he, we were talking about the training for it because he was asking me some of my thoughts on like, how would you train for this just physically and nutritionally? So I said, well, you know, help me understand like the parameters of the sport. So as he, the more he told me about it in an effort to allow me to help him think about how to train for it, the more I was like, dude, that sounds unbelievable. And I'll tell you the thing that most impressed me, it wasn't just the physical challenge. It was the degree of perfection that was necessary. It was this idea that you can't take a shot and wound an animal. Like he really emphasized this, which is like how good you have to be. Cause I, I, I think at some point I asked, well, how far do you have to be able to shoot from? And he says, you basically, your range is determined by the distance and conditions under which you are guaranteed. And we would say guaranteed might be 99 out of a hundred shots you would take at that range. You're confident that that animal dies almost instantaneously and, you know, double lung shot. And I said, well, what happens if you don't? And he goes, well, it's the most inhumane thing in the world. And you could be chasing that animal for two days to try to find it. And I was like, oh, wow, think about that for a minute. That's really impressive. Like that there's no screwing around here. And so over the next couple of months, so Tim went on his trip, which again, at the time I didn't know it was with heart, but you know, it turned out, so he's out there with one of the best hunters there is. Um, comes back, we talk about it, and it just sort of planted this seed in my head. And um, and then sometime a few months later, I literally just Google like archery San Diego and find this store, Performance Archery, and I pick it up, dial the phone, I'm like, hey, you know, I'm kind of thinking about getting into this stuff, like, what do you recommend? And this guy named JR answered the phone, <laughs> and he's like, well, um, why don't you come on in, take an archery class, you know, at least see if you like it and we'll go from there. So I came in, did an archery class, which was on a recurve, loved it. And the rest is sort of history, man. It just, it just, it became an immediate and total obsession. And obviously to have been so lucky to have met JR on that first day, who himself is just such a student of Dudley, which then immediately put me on a path to you know, being very rigorous in how we trained, you know, it's, that's the reason that, you know, I immediately went with a handheld back tension release first day out of the gate. He's like, it's easier to start with these other things, but that's not what we're going to do. We're going to start you on this path. And, um, and then of course, you know, now I'm friends with like literally every, like when you go in today, cause you're going to go like, I know everybody in that store. <laughs> I just go there. It's like, you know, in, in cheers, like when everyone just shows up to the bar, mm -hmm. like it's my cheers. Like I'm norm. I'm just norm. I just walk in there and <laughs> everybody like, knows. Your yeah. Name. Just yeah. There for, it's the place where everybody knows. It's the only place where everybody knows my name. <laughs> um, the guy who owns it is himself a legendary hunter, Bob Fromm. So when you go in there today, you will see things you've never seen before. But what's really interesting is when you, when you look at the taxidermy and you look at all of these things, I remember Bob one day pulling me aside and pointing to an axis deer and he goes, that's actually the most impressive kill in here, you know? And he's got like, he, he has a world record grizzly in there. 
Wow. Um, but he's like, you know, that axis deer is everything. Like that is the most switched on, difficult to stock animal there is. And it doesn't look that impressive, you know, that buck relative to all these other things. But so, so that seed was sort of planted that that's, you one day want to be at the point where you could do that. And when I started, I had no interest in hunting, not to say I didn't want to hunt or I just that I was more interested in this mastery. Like, I don't care. Like I'll sit here and shoot 20 yards forever. I would go in there and just shoot 20 for days until we could dial it. And then of course now I'm in, you know, I shoot in my backyard and it's just sort of evolved from there. Yeah. Your backyard setup is, I mean, it, it, you can, it's hard to mimic the terrain of any particular place you're going to go, whether there's snowy conditions or, you know, the mountains that we were in and in, in Hawaii, but it's fucking awesome. Like we could have a tournament <laughs> the here. First thought that yeah, I was yeah. like, we could wow. have a tournament. Yeah. It's incredible. It's incredible. And virtually any distance you want. Yeah. I mean, we, our longest shot we could take here is probably 125 yards. Um, which again, is just interesting if you're really trying to gauge what your limits are, but the more fun shots, like what we'll be doing this afternoon is, you know, it's the, you know, behind the tree, up the hill, down on the thing, you know, 60 yards here. And sometimes, honestly, it's just as fun to be like taking these 20 yard shots and seeing like, can you be within a quarter? Yeah. How you know, tight, can, how, how tight can you be at, at you know, at, at those ranges? Because as we learned on that hunt, I mean, you know, the if I learned one thing on that hunt, and I, I learned a hundred things on that hunt, but it was how important the spotting and the stalking is relative to the shooting. The shooting is the most trivial piece of the hunt. Like the actual kill shot is 5% of it. It's, it's those guides who are one with the animal. Like they know where the animals are going to go for shelter. They know where their water is. They know where their food is and they know how to get you into a place where you don't make a mistake when you take that shot. And that, that just blew my mind. And that's what made me realize like, I'm not, even at the tip of beginning to understand this sport. Yeah. I was taking a lot of mental notes and, and quite literally taking notes every single day. I think what was cool about the, the arc of our trip was the ability to go from something fairly easy, like boar up to, to sheep and goat, and then finally finishing with axis. And I, I was the only guy on the trip that didn't get an axis, but if anything, that just made the fire light even harder. I mean, that just poured gasoline on the fire, especially being able to taste all the access that you guys had gotten. It was like, wow. Yeah. You know, and, and you realize, look, it's, there's a lot of luck involved in getting that animal. It's, it's, I mean, I'm not telling you something you don't know, but not getting one is not a statement of you versus me. It's a statement of, I mean, you know, JR, JR and I got lucky with Jonathan to be able to be in an area and to be with guides who are like beyond switched on. And we just happened to get to a place where, okay, that's where they are. And we're going to get you in a position where you can do this. But, um, I remember the first two days we were up in the Hills, like didn't, we saw lots of deer, couldn't get within a, couldn't get within a distance of them. They just, they could always see us, smell us, you know, hear us coming. Yeah. Wind shifts, you're done. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> and that, 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 you know, to me, there is like, there were moments when I felt like frustrated. I was like, God damn it. Like how, how am I supposed to get a shot off? Like, I can't even get within 50 yards of these things. They always know. But then I was like, dude, why should it be easy? Like, yeah. like this is nature, man. The animal deserves to have this advantage over you. And it will make it that much sweeter when you finally manage to sneak up on this animal. It's, 
don't know. It's changed a lot for me. I mean, it's really changed how I think about food a lot. It's it's really put into a bit of a tailspin. Um, you know, like for example, you know, we have chickens here. So I now it's like sort of awkward for me and weird for me to go to a grocery store and want to buy eggs. I'm like, why would I buy eggs from a chicken that I don't know anything about, that I haven't yeah. fed? You know, these chickens, like they're eating like our, you know, when we make food and whatever scraps we have, like they're eating them. And I, I know what, I know how clean they are. I know all of this stuff. And similarly, eating this meat from animals that are like living in the wild and I mean, living beautiful, amazing, fun, healthy lives until the second they die. And again, I'm being a bit facetious because nature's cruel. I'm sure their lives suck sometimes too when they're, you know, can't find food or whatever. But um, it really makes it harder for me to think about, like, I just find myself eating much less meat that is not meat that has been killed in this fashion. Yeah, I think that's that's something Joe, talk, Joe Rogan talked about was having enough supply of meat to live solely off the food that you kill and hunt and that's that's i mean that's a great goal it's a hundred percent my goal i mean by this time next year i want to be in that situation where i never have to eat a single uh piece of meat that i didn't that me or my friend didn't kill in the wild you know under the most natural setting possible um and then you know one day to be able to have a garden that would you know foster being able to eat all your own vegetables and with Reese, we might actually get there. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, Reese is definitely the gardener <laughs> of the house for sure. Um, well, let's shift gears here. Obviously, a lot of people know you for performance and longevity. Um, I think it would, I didn't even write this down, but I did want to talk a bit about, uh, I think it was with Rhonda Patrick. There's, the, is it the five keys to longevity? There's like five things that people are focused on when it comes to longevity. And those are, yeah, I mean, I think there's five sort of categories of tactics, and I've I've been struggling to think about a a way to explain this, to come up with an analogy to explain it. And maybe the best analogy I have, which I still think sort of sucks, is a table. Um, and so a good table will have four legs, and those four legs then, if you're if all four of those are strong, that table is pretty strong. And if three of them are strong it can be okay. If two of them are strong, it's not a very strong table. And if it's one of them, forget about it. So those four legs, and then the, and then sort of, you know, like think of the tablecloth or whatever that you lay on the top of it. So, um, and again, this, this analogy I'm going to continue to work on. So I, I, I hope by the time my book comes out, I've come up with a better way to do this, but the, the gist of it is basically everything that has to do with nutritional biochemistry, everything that has to do with sleep physiology, everything that has to do with exercise physiology, everything that has to do with emotional health. And that's where it gets a little unparalleled because, you know, it's easy for people to understand sleep and exercise and nutrition, but emotional health is so broad, but that includes so many things that range from meditation to, you know, practices of relational, um, living to psychedelics, like all the things that fit into the health of you as a person emotionally. And then the last one is just this, you know, waste bucket of what I call exogenous molecules, distinct from the molecules that we've just talked about as far as like psychedelics and stuff, but, you know, your standard pharmaceutical drugs, hormones, and supplements. So those are basically the five broad categories of tactics. Those are the things that you can manipulate to try to improve. I love that. And I want to 
If you have a better way for me to explain it, please yeah, let me know. I, 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 I don't, I don't do like that. that way that much. We, I will. Uh, I want to link to your podcast that you did with Robert Sapolsky, which mm. is excellent. And I think that's a great, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers is such a fantastic book. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. But to get people- He's an awesome dude, by the he's way. He's incredible. Unreal. Yeah. Just to get people in a, a broader idea of what we mean by stress and emotions and how to handle that and, and really seeing like a clear picture of how it's done in nature and how it's done in modern man. And then what are the ways we can kind of retrace those steps? But let's let's dive into mitochondrial health because it's such a hot topic right now. And it's funny, people go back and forth on different things in terms of how we go best about uh, mitochondrial biogenesis, how we heal those things, what disease states actually can occur from having messed up mitochondria. But what would you say are some of the most important things we can do for mitochondrial health? Well... This is this is something I've thought a lot about, and I, I don't I don't know that I know the answer. But um, one of my colleagues, uh, actually a guy who I'm going to be interviewing on the podcast, um, he's a physiologist at the University of Colorado in Boulder, uh, in Denver, actually. Um, his last name is uh, San Milan, so Dr. San Milan. He um, just an incredible physiologist. He he made a point to me once, which was. If you want to understand mitochondrial health, why don't we start with the people that have the best mitochondria on the planet, which are endurance athletes. And he works with professional athletes. He himself used to be a professional cyclist, uh, or sorry, he was a professional soccer player, very high level cyclist, but now he works exclusively with several of the professional cycling teams as um, sort of this physiologist. That's actually how I met him was through our sort of an overlap in that area. And you know, he proposed this idea, which he's probably not the first to propose it, but I thought it was just such an excellent idea, which was someone who's really, really got switched on mitochondria is going to be able, so if you take two people and one person's average and the other person is superior and you give them the same amount of work to do, and we can measure work in watts, kilojoules, you know, units of actual work, and you have them do the same amount of work one of them will do so producing less lactic acid. And the one who can have less lactic acid is the one who has more efficient mitochondria. And so that idea really struck with me, which is we aren't spending enough time really thinking about what peak mitochondrial performance looks like. And for me, having spent so much time in that world thinking about that, I was a little amazed at how I'd sort of forgotten that point. Because in take a sport like cycling, which was sort of, you know, probably the most recent thing I've done competitively um, was cycling. Uh, we spend so much time training at levels above that, meaning levels where you're producing lots of lactic acid. And your mitochondria are still heavily relied upon there, but it's not really the peak area where you're able to examine their efficiency because by that point, you're now demanding ATP at a high enough level that you're, you just have to be generating energy anaerobically as well. But what he was saying is, look, let's bring it down to this level where your lactate is 1.6, 1.7, 1.8, maybe up to 1.9, but probably below two and see how much more wattage, because in bikes we use watts as our metric, but you could be doing this on a treadmill and look at, you know, miles per hour or incline, or just look at overall mets, you know, metabolic equivalents. How high can you start to push that number while clamping lactate output there. And that becomes your marker of mitochondrial performance. 
So even today, that was the workout I did before we did our little set from hell was, and I do these, I do three hours of this mitochondrial work a week where. Is that spread between, is it done in one session or is it no, done in two or three? It's done usually in three or four. So I'll okay. either do three 60 minute sessions at what we call zone two or four 45 minute sessions. So this week I did four 45s. I did like 45 minutes of zone two. And you, I don't know if you saw, but at the end, I'm actually checking my lactate levels yeah, throughout. That, I'll be checking my is lactate. Is that something like a precision extra? It's just a, it's the same, to... it's a point of care device. It's okay. a different device. So there's one called lactate plus one called lactate pro. And I use them both just to always have two machines doing it. And, you know, in case there's a discordance, it starts to make me question it. Does one of them need to be calibrated or something like that? Um, but yeah, so I drive the training by the lactate level, which is overkill. Like if you're a person who wants to do this, but doesn't want to, you know, go and fork over for lactate blood poking things, uh, the poor man's test for this is zone two is sort of the, the, the highest level of exertion where you can still carry out a conversation. Now, if we were doing this podcast while I was on my bike at zone two, I wouldn't be talking quite like this. I'd be a little bit more strained, but I could still have this discussion. And once you get past that, once I, once I get to the point where I don't want to talk anymore, uh, then I've gone into zone three. I think uh, a great place for people as well, that, that something that really helps me have that built-in governor or limiter is to just do nasal breathing while mm -hmm. I do that. So I'll jump on a concept two rower and hit a 10K row, breathing through my nose the whole time, or a two to three mile jog breathing through my nose the whole time. And I think that's a great cap. Yep. This might be a touch less than that, although I'd have to calibrate it. Um, going back to boxing for a moment, that was sort of one of my training insights was, as you know, you know, when you're in a fight, if your opponent doesn't know you're tired, it's a huge advantage. And so I sort of figured that out early and realized, why is it I do so much of my training in a manner that doesn't mimic fighting. I should be doing everything with a mouth guard and I should always be breathing through my nose. If I'm doing squats to failure, I should have a mouth guard and I should be breathing through my nose. When I run, I should have a mouth guard and I should be breathing through my nose. So that basically changed my training when I was like 15. And I was, with a, I was in a mouth guard six hours a day, always nasal breathing, no matter how much it hurt. Um, and then I started getting to the point where I'd plug one nostril and it was just, just like <laughs> alternate nostril breathing. Yeah. Just, just like <laughs> stupid stuff. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's sort of amazing how you can have those little built-in governors that become great ways to help you understand the physiology. I love it. Well, let's, let's shift gears into how diet affects that as well. Um, one of the things that got you, got me into you was first hearing you right after I retired, I think it was 2014, you're on the Tim Ferriss show. And within three months, I had heard you and Dr. Dominic Agostino. I didn't know who was first or second, but I was like, I'm going to give ketosis a shot. Um, so Do you know from, Dom? Uh, yeah, he was actually on the show. Oh, was he? Yeah. Oh, awesome. Great. Okay. Absolutely great guy. Yeah. Just fantastic. Unbelievable dude. Yeah. He's a real, really great guy. Um, one of the things I love about him and you is your ability to, to dumb it down a bit for the lay folks. And that's not always said of, obviously, there's some really... There's some podcasts you have that I got to listen to twice and take notes, but I mean, you do both of you do a great job of that. Um, so you were three years deep into ketosis. Yep, three years at one of, point. Uh, yeah, sort of went uh, middle of eleven to middle of fourteen was with one night exception, no de deviation. Damn, how did you pull off? Did you pull off four to one, or were you relying upon the the, the physical output? I ended up at four to one, but. 
um, I had a different problem to solve. So this was back when I was still training really hard. Um, and my caloric demand was unbearable. So uh, part of that was actually during, so from 11 to 14 was a period of time when I went from sort of competitive swimming to competitive cycling. Um, by competitive, I just mean like wanker competitive, like, you know, <laughs> masters swimming, you know, masters mm. cycling, that kind of stuff. Not like I wasn't like a real dude or anything. But, you know, I took my serious, I took my training as seriously as any wanker can take their training. And I had basically figured out that I, outside of days when I was doing really long aerobic stuff, so we can park that for a moment as one exception to this rule. But if you just took my standard training, which would have been probably 12 workouts ranging from 60 to 120 minutes per week. So you're doing a two a day, five days a week, I think, but it's generally at a pretty higher, you know, it's at a higher intensity with maybe the exception of a couple of them. So that would have been three lifts, five swims and the remainder on the bike. Um, I still had to keep carbs below 50 grams a day. And that was total carb, not net carb. I just, I didn't even, I realized it didn't make sense to try to figure fiddle with net carbs because you couldn't trust nutrition labels anyway. So it was all carbs counted the same and I had to keep them below 50. I also had to keep my protein down below about a buck 10 to a buck 20. Which higher than out, most people. It is. Yeah. Um, and that turned out to be by far the hardest part for me of ketosis. That was this constant struggle was protein, not carbs. And then the rest had to be fat. But I needed about 4,500 calories a day to sort of maintain my weight. And at the time I was, you know, like I was 178 this morning. Back then I was sort of 164 to 170 was my sort of vacillating weight. Um, so if you do the math on that, you got 50 there, 120 there. It ended up that eight maybe eight to 10% of my total calories came from carbs and protein combined. About 90% of my calories were fat. And so that just meant coming up with as many ways that were not miserable to just get pure sources of fat. So I had this whole spreadsheet where I worked everything out. Now, I also had the luxury at the time, I don't think I could do this today, but at the time I was just able to be very repetitive. You know, I could live my food life out of a spreadsheet and I just sort of knew like every food I had, I would put into this spreadsheet and I would, you know, little model would calculate how much of this you could eat. What element became rate limiting here? Did the carb rate limit you? Did the protein rate limit you? The fat could never rate limit you. And I realized like you know, cream cheese, I could eat as much as I wanted because it was, it was never going to be rate limited by, I mean, you could at some point eat too much cream cheese due to those other things, but generally you weren't. So things like macadamia nuts, olive oils became the real staple of my diet because you're just getting pure fat essentially. Even almonds, I had to have gated because mm -hmm. at some point you're gonna trigger your carb alarm. It sounds so stupid, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, certainly most forms of protein had to be very gated. It's not, you know, this idea of eating like a ribeye the size of your head every night was total bullshit, right? It was like a little piece of salmon or a little piece of this or a little piece of that, but <laughs> this is why I just I just get so aggravated by sort of the whole diet world. It's you know people have this view that you're you know you're eating a ketogenic diet you're you're drinking butterful coffee every day. I mean the reality is I never had, I never had a bulletproof coffee once in my life during that three year period, um, and instead I probably ate more vegetables than most vegetarians. 
because you just had to like it became the tool to deliver oil yeah you know i i had to have two like that bowl of salad we had last night that would have been mine that would have been mine every single night enough salad to feed six adults was mine every night just because it was a vehicle to deliver olive oil so um i'm having two salads a day like that so um i i know going back and looking at the math i was at a four to one ratio but again i didn't come at it through that lens i came at it through well if you're going to hit four thousand calories a day and 3600 of those calories are going to come from fat or thereabouts you're you're going to be eaten like a child with epilepsy yeah but that's not that's no easy feat and my my morning ketones i tracked every day i think my three-year average milli, morning millimolar ketone in, for bhb was 1.73 um which is higher than most people i think yeah. as a morning get up out of bed ketone level um and obviously i'd have days you know especially when, when i like once a week i was doing a long bike ride those days would generally be followed by you know really high ketone levels in the morning i could wake up at six millimolar oh no shit yeah because what happened is the body especially if it's not at a super intense ride if it's like kind of a modest intensity ride with you know maybe if you know obviously cycling is always going to have a burst here and there but if it's a ride where you know you're averaging 175 watts your normalized power is 200 watts um your body just gets into a new mode of humming and it just starts generating that fuel that ketone and even after you stop, the body takes a while to bring down its production. So yeah, those days would always be followed by very high levels. I think that max I was between 0 0.5, 0 0.7 first thing in the morning hmm. for the most part. Um, I want to dive in here to how that's shifted. Obviously, it's it's. I know you've talked about this before, but it's not a fun diet to stay on if you love fruit and other things and starches and even just more meat, which I certainly, mm -hmm. certainly do. Um, but a great deal of how this diet has shifted is to things like Mark Sisson talks about metabolic flexibility, the ability to go back and forth and not that one is better than the other, but how, if you've in large part eaten carbohydrates at every turn your entire life and you're 30 or 40 years old, maybe it's good to create some space for that. Yeah. Quarterly now you do one week ketosis, one week water fast and another week of ketosis. Yep. Um, let's dive into that because I I find this this fascinating. It seems on paper to maybe be a bit easier than remaining in ketosis year round, but totally is by the way. It is. Oh my god! Because yeah. I've done I've done two five day water fasts, and the thing I realized after the first one was I cannot be home. I cannot have work. I cannot be cooking food for my little man mm -hmm. because when he doesn't finish it, then I'm like, oh god, I want to eat it. It's too tempting. Yeah. You are such a busy individual. How do you pull off? not just taking off to the Bahamas for that water fast. Well, I, I always do the water fast in New York. So okay. it's always a week that that is definitely makes it easier. I mean, it would be hard to do a water fast for that long here. Um, and, you know, sort of the, the routine there is pretty straightforward. Now that said, look, I'll, I'll have, I'll go out and do dinners and meals and meet with people. And if it calls for us to be doing such a thing in a, in a restaurant, I don't care. So I'm, it's, it's not a problem for me to watch people eating. So you have the um, discipline. Well, I don't know. I just think it's, I don't think it requires that much discipline to be binary. Discipline, which is something I don't have, is, hey, there's a tub of animal crackers. I'll have two handfuls. 
You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I don't have that discipline. Like I'm pretty good at saying I'm not going to have one. Okay. But I'm really bad at having some. And so in that sense, that's why I find fasting to be quite easy. Not always. I've had I've had one fat the the which fast did I do? Two fasts ago was one of the most difficult ones I ever did. And I don't know why. To this day, I've gone back. I mean, I have some hypotheses that I'll test. I'm doing another one in four weeks. And I have some hypothesis that I'll test about what might have gone wrong on that fast. But, and I, and I talked about it a few times on Instagram because I thought my whole thing on Instagram is like, try to try to have an equal ratio of success to failure demonstrated on Instagram. And I, I remember posting a video of how much I was just sucking like just dying on that fast. I mean, and it wasn't the usual stuff. It wasn't just, oh, I'm lightheaded because I know how to sort of titrate my way out of those problems. But it was, I'm really dragging. I'm really hungry. My ketones weren't getting up to the levels I would have expected. Um, I really wasn't enjoying it. I, I was really miserable and I couldn't, I was, it's like, you know, there's nothing worse than counting down the minutes until something's over. That's, it's okay to feel that way once in a while. But to your point about flow, for me, generally, a fast is a great experience. Hmm. And part of it's just a conditioning experience. It's just to remind myself of how capable I can be when I'm not eating. And that, and you bring that back with you into the world outside of the fast. You know, um, last night or two nights ago when I flew back from New York, uh, you know, it's just every, it's like always those late flights suck because they're always late and you're, you know, so by the time you get home, it's like midnight. And I know, I know that the worst thing I could do is eat, even though I'm hungry. Because I also don't like to eat on the plane. So I'm eating, you know, I have dinner in the airport at 7 p.m. New York time. So 4 p.m. San Diego time. And then I get here at midnight San Diego time. And I'm hungry because I've been up on a computer. And that was a moment. And I remember I walked in the door and I opened the fridge. And it was just a ton of stuff I could have inhaled big bowl of rice, ton of berries. It's not, it's not like I wanted to go and eat potato chips and cookies. I just wanted to eat all the stuff that was in the fridge. But I knew, I know what that's going to do to my sleep. It's going to destroy my sleep. And I knew that like my sleep is just my baby. Like I want it. I want, I want my heart rate variability. You know, I want my heart, I want, I want all those metrics to be dialed in. So I said, dude, just close the fridge. You can do it. You've been here before. You've been hungry before. You've gone to bed hungry many a time. You can do it. So that was a great example of like a little victory that I think fasting can help you with outside of the fasted state. Being in the office when, you know, the cake is brought in and I'm like, all right, you can do this. You can walk away from the cake, even though you're hungry right now. And that cake looks damn good. And by the way, at least half the time I give in and I have that stupid cake, but, but, you know, I'll take 50% victories over none. Yeah. And on top of that, like it, at that point, you could, you could honestly say that you have earned that. You do have some, some flexibility. You're probably going to utilize carbohydrates a lot better than if you hadn't spent time fasting in the past or in ketosis. Well, the CGM also really helps me. This has become a total game changer for the way I function. I don't have to guess anymore when I'm hitting my limits of carbohydrate intake. You had the guy on who created that. That's right. Well, he didn't create it, but Kevin Sayer okay. is the CEO of Dexcom, which is okay. one of three companies that make it. But, but they're also, they make like the other two companies don't make a very good one. So they make the best one by far. They're the only company that's sort of dedicated exclusively to making this. So they run about a thousand dollars. Is that right? Well, um, Maybe a prescription. 
Yes, you need a prescription. And I think for the, you typically buy a 90 day kit. So the 90 day kit has the transmitter. um, And then you buy like the sense, you have a sensor last 10 days. So you'll buy nine sensors. So the nine sensors plus the transmitter is a little under a grand. Um, So yeah, it's, 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 it's crazy expensive, you know, call it $10 a day is basically what you're paying. It's a little less than, yeah, it's probably like 900 bucks. And it might be less, by the way. I think Costco gives a great deal on the transmitters. Okay. Um, but anyway, so whatever, call it five to 10 bucks a day. Okay, that's a ton of money. I get that. But for me, that's just a totally worthwhile um, investment because of two things. One, you've got a whole set of insights that come from this. And, you know, I'm coming up to four years wearing CGM. I still learn little things. I am still blown away at the things that I eat that will impair my glucose metabolism. And the and, and, and at the other end of that spectrum, the times when I am metabolically in such a good place that my tolerance for carbohydrates in general and even junky carbohydrates is much higher. So that's the kind of insight piece of it. The second piece of it is the behavioral piece. It's, you know, with our patients, we talk about, all right, you know, first thing we want to do is get a baseline on you. And we, we explain to them, look, by evaluating your baseline, we're changing your behavior. That's called the Hawthorne effect. And we try to get them to fight against the Hawthorne effect so we can truly see a baseline. But sometimes you can use the Hawthorne effect to your advantage, which is effectively what a CGM is. CGM is a little plastic Hawthorne effect that comes everywhere with me. And I gamify it. I just, it's how I decide sometimes I'm not going to eat that cookie because if I eat that cookie, I'm going to have to look at this number go higher than, and I have very dialed metrics on exactly what I want to see. And it's going to screw up my metrics. And it's sort of like what the ring has done for me. The aura ring has done on sleep. It's like, I've always appreciated the value of sleep. You know, not always, but you know, once I realized it, I dialed in, but the ring allows me to take it to another level. It's gamified it a bit. So now every night I'm thinking, all right. Is it cold enough? Is it dark enough? Have you dialed yourself back? Are you making sure you're taking blue light away? Are you not eating? You're not drinking? Um, all of those things, because now I see how negatively they impact my sleep. So for me, the CGM and the ring just become a great tool to improve my behavior, even when I'm not learning something new, just because of the game I play with myself. Yeah, it's really important to have that. I mean, that really is the beauty behind the self-quantification movement, right? We have access. I, I have a Whoop watch on. Yep. Both of those are, are incredible tools. That was something for me because I, I love dry farm wines. I'm not a big drinker. But if I, you know, if there's a fight on TV and I'm partying with friends and I have a bottle, like that's going to fuck up my sleep score. Yeah. I might brutal. have zero minutes of deep sleep. Yep. Uh, if I'm able to scale that back and just have a glass or two with dinner, totally different ballgame. I'm even more sensitive I mean, like last night when you guys, when, when, when the guys had the beer, like, I love that beer. Like that's like, that's, I don't like beer, but I like that beer a lot. But you know, when I was pouring them, I was like, I'm not even going to pour myself one. I'll, I'll pour my wife one and I'll have two sips and that's it because of that exact reason. If I had had a full, um, glass of that, that would have impacted my sleep. Well, let's talk about a bit about what disease states benefit most from ketosis fasting. And obviously fasting covers a lot. And I'll link to um, 
The Complete Guide to Fasting by Dr. Jason Fung and Jimmy Moore, which I think is a great place for people to start because it kind of gives a broad view of all the different forms of fasting. So if you're not willing to pony up for a seven-day water fast, you can get away with some intermittent fasting. And, different and I don't know things. if you know this, but I'm, I'm working really closely with a company called Zero, which is an app for fasting. Oh, so yeah. Put, no, put, I, I, I did. I'll, Remember I'll I texted you. Yeah, I'll put in my shameless plug for Zero is just a great place for people to get started uh, with fasting because you you can start with the simplest thing imaginable which is just time restricted feeding just use a timer figure out when you're eating and not eating you know the way i was explaining to people is the first thing you want to do before you change a behavior is understand your current behavior how often are you going without food and i think most people are kind of amazed that we live in this world of an incessant iv drip of food and it's like, there's nothing evolutionary about that. So, I mean, it's very hard to make the case, despite the fact that the breakfast cereal companies will tell you that breakfast is the most important meal and you should be eating six meals a day or whatever other nonsense is spewed out there. Um, but for most people just to observe what is the largest gap they take in not eating, which is almost without exception from when they eat their last thing before bed till their first thing in the morning. But see, how much can you start to stretch that out? Um, we could talk for hours about the actual data on time-restricted feeding. So what is the actual efficacy of this in, for example, treating type 2 diabetes? But I would argue that even if type, uh, even if time-restricted feeding brings with it no medical benefit, and I think it does bring some, by the way, but if it didn't, I still think it's a valuable tool because it really is the thin end of the wedge to bring you over to intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting being I define it as a fast that's like, you know, a couple days or longer, per okay. periodically done. I love the Zero app. I saw right when they put the content with you up on it and yeah, I yeah. shot you a text. I was like, oh shit, you're We're, we're going to be making a ton this summer, actually. Um, we're going to do is basically take a lot of the content that, you know, I, I sort of provide my patients and sort of figure out a way to now kind of scale that to sort of get you, basically allow everybody to sort of figure out like, how can you navigate this? Cause it's super intimidating. I think for people to hear even a discussion like ours and be like, what are those two idiots talking about? Like, <laughs> what do you mean fast? What do you mean not eating for seven days? And of course you would never, I mean, actually I shouldn't say that. There are some physicians, Jason Fung, who's an amazing doctor. Jason actually does this sometimes. He'll just take a patient that shows up with raging diabetes, and they'll be like, all right, dude, you're not eating for 10 days. See you in 10 days. Um, by his own admission, half the time that doesn't work. <laughs> you know, 80% of the time they just don't do it. And when they do it, the results are mind-boggling. You know, they can be off insulin in 10 days. Um, but I think for most people to, to start through this pathway of time-restricted feeding to hypocaloric intermittent fasting to water-only intermittent fasting, even if you took a year to do that, which is actually the timetable we would give most of our patients, one, you're blown away by how, how much you you adapt to it. And two, you're just blown away by the benefits. Yeah, it's incredible. And that the benefits range far more than what you see on blood work. Like some of the first things that I started to notice were my, my brain worked better, cognitive function, I was sharper. I had more energy throughout the day, like infinite energy. And I mean that cognitively, not just like physical energy where I could do better in my workouts. That came too, but just the ability to think, to not bonk, to not crash in the mid-afternoon. Yeah. Like that's that's huge. Also, um, I think just some of the aches and pains that tend to go away. Yeah, um, when that lowered systemic inflammation. Yeah. Yeah. And without the need for non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Like and I think going back to mitochondria, I mean, I think there's a real mitophagy component here. Um, I can't, I talked about this on a podcast, although, so I apologize that I'm repeating it. It might have even been my own podcast, so I, I can't for the life of me remember when or where, but talked a little bit about um, 
a paper that came out a year ago that was very interesting. One of the big differences we see between the muscles of, you know, someone who's 30 and someone who's 60, and let's assume that they're both doing all the right things. So we're not, we're trying to make it as apples to apples as we can with the exception being age is if you biopsy their muscles, you will see more inflammation in the muscles of the 60 year old than in the 30 year old. And we just know as we age, inflammation increases. And that's led, you know, some people to, to use sort of the cheeky uh, phrase inflammaging. So a paper did um, an interesting experiment with, uh, I believe it was in mice, where they gave um, a molecule that blocks the ability to sense mitochondrial DNA. So this molecule is called sting. And by doing that, they were able to reduce inflammation. So what does that tell us? If you unpack it, what it suggests is that mitochondrial damage is uniquely inflammatory. So why that is, one explanation would be that, as you, you know, the mitochondria have their own DNA. They come with their own genes. And it's a sliver of our genome, right? We have in the neighborhood of you know, 24,000 genes in our nucleus, so we would call nuclear DNA. And you've got, God, I'm blanking on it now, I want to say like maybe 20 genes in the mitochondria. That's it. But those come from bacteria. And when the mitochondria are damaged and when they're breaking down, that mitochondrial DNA is getting into the cytoplasm. And it's eliciting an immune response because it looks foreign. So when your DNA, your nuclear DNA, breaks down, your body ignores it because it's no, it knows that it's you. But when the mitochondrial DNA break down, even though they're you, they don't look like you. They look like a foreign pathogen. They look like a bacteria. And therefore, you get this enhanced immunity. And what this experiment did was it demonstrated that if you gave something that blocked the ability to sense that, you made the, even though you were breaking apart mitochondria, you stopped the inflammatory piece. And so just as we see autophagy where the body self-recycles whole cells, you can self-recycle these mitochondria. And I think that fasting is, at least to my understanding and my knowledge, I don't think there's a better way to accelerate that process. So that's why I think these periodic periods of fasting can be quite powerful. No, yeah, absolutely, no doubt. Let's talk NAD. Uh, I forget the guy you had on. Totally I had a couple. Like, I mean, well, I talked with David Sinclair about it at de in detail, and then I got him Chris Master John. Yes, that's yeah. what I'm thinking of. So you guys, you guys touched on quite a few things. I think uh, the perils of the supplement game with with products like Elysium and things like that, and where they fall short. Um, first, let's just get abroad. What is NAD? Why is it good for us? And then we'll talk about how we can raise that endogenously. So NAD is a um, is a, is an electron uh, proton acceptor. So, um, so NAD exists sort of in a, uh, equilibrium with something called NADH and, um, what they're, they're, they're useful for several things, but one of the things that they're very useful for is, uh, helping us to transfer electrons. So the mitochondria, which we've been talking about, they have these different, um, complexes or subunits that span their inner and outer membranes. And, if you think about what metabolism is, metabolism is in part just an energy transfer problem. It's basically taking food, which is chemical energy, so the energy of chemical bonds, particularly the carbon-carbon and the carbon-hydrogen bond, 
And by breaking those bonds apart through this metabolic process, you liberate energy. And we use that to then create electrical energy, which is this electron transport chain that eventually we kick back into chemical energy to make ATP. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what's going on. And there are these things that transfer it. So NAD and NADH exist to do that, among other reagents in that system. But there's this other thing, um, th these other sort of uh, class of molecules called sirtuins that also play a role in preventing aging. And David Sinclair, who I did interview, uh, I think David and I talk about this. And David gave, I think, uh, about as good a, a treatise as you could have on this topic, given his expertise in it and his sort of uh, affinity for being able to talk about complicated things easily. Sirtuins play this amazing role in basically doing all the right stuff, right? So rather than go into all of the molecular details of what they do, pause it for a moment that sirtuins are good. I don't think anybody will dispute that. Sirtuins require NAD to do their job. So think of NAD as the fuel that sirtuins need to reduce inflammation, enhance homeostasis, and all of these things. There is no denying that as we age, our NAD levels go down. Now it begs a question, do our NAD levels go down because of some reason we can't think of? Do they go down because we make less? Do they go down because we use more, because we need more? Because as we talked about a second ago, the older you get, the more you know you need the repair benefit of the sirtuins. I think a number of people believe that the latter is the primary issue. It's not that we're making less NAD. And even if we are, that doesn't change the argument, by the way. But we're certainly using more NAD because we're relying on these sirtuins more. And so the, and again, I think up until the, what I just said now, I think there is broad consensus in the scientific community on what I just said. Where I think it gets a little complicated is what would you do about that? And so the first order answer to that question is, okay, you need more NAD. Okay. Makes sense. Um, how do you do that? Because I can't just give you a pill of NAD. Um, it turns out, despite the fact that this happens all over the place, I can't really give you intravenous NAD because that's not really getting into your cell. What, and why is that? I wanted to, I wanted to, that's where I was heading next. Yeah. Um, not to take you off topic, but obviously there's, there's some, there's some, I think a big clinic in uh, San Diego that does this for opiate addiction and they'll do day long NAD IV treatments. Yeah. Uh, I've had them done before. That's actually how I met Tim Ferriss and Lance Armstrong, a fucking name drop, name drop. But like that, that's where I met those guys and we were doing that. And I can't speak upon their experience. Maybe it was placebo for me, but I worked out like an animal. I wasn't sleeping well and I never got run down. I mean, my intuition is it's probably a placebo effect because okay. there's just no evidence that the NAD in your bloodstream, which is where they're delivering it, is making it into your cell. Okay. Um, now, remember, I could give you a mega dose of niacin and you will feel, I could make you feel like an enormous flush. And in fact, as you probably know, they've even used niacin sometimes as placebos in psychedelic studies because yeah. it has such a profound impact that you feel, but no known sort of cognitive or neuropsychiatric or psychoactive yeah. properties. So I, 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 my, my point of view on this is that intravenous niacin is, uh, in, sorry, intravenous NAD is not actually getting into the cell and it's not at all addressing the problem we have. But you absolutely feel it. 
um I, it's funny i remember talking to lance after he did that because he called me and we were talking about it and he was like dude that was like the worst feeling of my life <laughs> it's, it sucks <laughs> yeah for yeah, sure. yeah um so yeah and i haven't had it done but i've talked to uh, and i've talked to tim i've talked to a bunch of people who have done it and and yeah the general consensus is it's, it doesn't feel good at all um but of course, so in other words, and that's a real feeling that that doesn't strike me as placebo. It's so it's so uniform and so ubiquitous that people experience that. I think the benefits are probably placebo. Um, and I think that, you know, you mentioned a company, Elysium. There's another company called Chromadex, which are really the two big companies in this space. And and also two companies that have really legitimate scientific people in them. I mean, I think the supplement space is highly unregulated and it's sort of buyer beware across the board. But these two companies are actually created by scientists. They have real scientists involved and they do real science. And even though I don't necessarily agree with their conclusions all the time, um, I would disagree with them in the way that I would disagree with a legitimate person doing science. Their view is, yeah, you can't just give people NAD. Um, so what you have to do is give the precursor to NAD. And that would be nicotinamide riboside, abbreviated NR. And, you know, again, here there's different ways to sort of do this. Um, what Elysium is doing is taking NR and pairing it with something called terastilbene, which is abbreviated PT. So it's NR plus PT is this compound that they make called basis. Um, I don't, I think Chromadex, well, they have a product called Truniagen. And I can't recall if they're using terastilbene or just NR. But notwithstanding the legal and hatred, you know, legal battles and hatred between these two companies, in my mind, they're basically equivalent. Um, now, people at both those companies might hear me right now and go, no, we're not. Oh, my God. What is that idiot saying? I apologize if I'm out to lunch on that. But and maybe things have changed a little bit. But they're effectively both putting out what I would consider a pharmaceutical grade NR plus or minus a sirtuin activator. Um, this is one where I am still trying to understand this space, but a medical school colleague of mine named Josh Rabinowitz at Princeton, um, his lab published a study, I believe last August, um, maybe it was in July, we're coming up to about a year ago, um, that at least in a mouse was able to use an NR tracer and an NAD tracer and basically suggested that that NR that you were giving orally was all going via the liver. So we have something called the first pass effect, right? When you eat the, like pharmacology is an interesting study and that, and that applies to supplements. I don't consider drugs or supplements different. It's just a regulatory distinction, but these are external molecules you put in your mouth. You hope, if you're designing a drug, you always have to ask yourself, what is the liver metabolism due to this? What is the first pass effect doing? So some drugs are actually designed where you eat a pro-drug in anticipation of the liver turning it into the drug you want. Um, other drugs are designed such that the first there is no first pass effect if you can make that happen. But what Josh's group showed was that when you gave the NR, the liver made a ton of NAD, which now puts us back in the same question of, well, is that beneficial to the cells outside of the liver where presumably you want it, like your muscles? And again, I think the folks at Chromadex and um, Elysium will tell you, yes, it's getting in. And they'll probably also argue that the NR is directly getting in. I just haven't seen enough data. They, you know, I've, 
some of them have said to me they've got unpublished data. Um, I don't have a dog in this fight. I mean, I, 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 I have absolutely nothing to gain or lose by this. I'm just purely interested. And frankly, if there is evidence that you can take oral NR or NMN, by the way, which is a, a it's not even worth getting into the distinction. They're almost identical. Um, one might be more stable than the other. But if you could take oral NR or NMN and have it get into cells that matter and become NAD, dude, I'm the first guy in line to be doing it. You think that it would take something like Dr. Andy Galpin or anybody else that's doing muscle biopsies to study that with the idea of- I don't know because in? it really, I mean, look, I don't think this is that hard to study. Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I, I'm. What you really want to know is, is it not just getting in the muscle, is it getting in the mitochondria? <laughs> I mean, to me, that's sort of where I want to know it's happening. Um, but it might not have to get into the mitochondria. You know, the, maybe it just has to get into the cytoplasm of any cell that matters, any myocyte. Um, I'm going to be having David Sinclair back on my podcast, actually, at the end of the summer. And I this is definitely going to be a topic we're going to get into because I just think David's one of the most knowledgeable people on it. Um, you know, he, he trained with Lenny, who's Lenny is the scientific founder of um, Elysium. So, um, you know, these guys are these guys are smart dudes, and um, I'm all for it. You know, I I did I took the Chromadex pro product, which is Truniagen, for 90 days, like two or three years ago, just as an experiment to say, will I feel any different? I didn't feel worse, and I didn't feel better. And there's nothing you can really measure in my blood that's going to help me think about it. So I just, I'm somewhat of a minimalist when it comes to everything I take. That sounds odd for people who know me because they think I take a lot of stuff, but I can actually point to either a biomarker that's changing or something that's changing in my experience, although it could be subjective and therefore placebo. Um, but with that, I just couldn't make the case. Conversely, I've had patients who swear up and down that their sleep is infinitely better as a result of it and that they have more energy, to which I say, great, keep taking it. Because one, I don't think it's harm. I, I really think it's a safe product. Um, and even if it's the placebo, I will take it all day long. Because if it's making you feel better and sleep better, then more power to you. Hell yeah. All right. Two more before we get into the, the topic of conversation I really want to chat about. I, I definitely want to chat about all this stuff because I'm learning so much. But you had Rhonda on and you were talking about IGF-1 and kind of this, you know, I remember uh, in college taking IGF-1. And mm -hmm. I remember people right when the deer ant Taking IGF day, or taking, oh, you're taking the spray. Okay, got it. Not, yeah. not growth hormone. No, no, I was taking IGF-1 yeah. LR3. Yep. And I had tried, tried growth hormone in college playing football and both worked. Then they came out with the deer antler spray and a lot of people sat on both sides of the fence. I think you can still find that somewhere, but, um, that's the stuff Ray Lewis took when he yeah, tore his tricep. Yeah. yeah. And there's, you know, I don't know that that shit works, but point is for a while that was like, Hey, this is going to help you perform better. And then for a while, the longevity community said, this will make you die quicker. And this is what accelerates cancer growth and all that. And then what I found curious on your podcast with her was, that it is sort of, as with many things, this bell curve. And you don't want to have the extreme low end and you don't want to have the extreme high end, but somewhere in between. So with that, if that's correct, with that said, what are the ways we can raise that naturally? Uh, so I think raising IGF is really easy. Um, IGF is highly responsive to protein. Uh, it's highly responsive to particularly methionine, um, which fortunately is pretty ubiquitous. So you don't, no, no one needs to go out of their way getting my methionine supplements, right? Just 
eat some meat, you'll get some methionine. Um, so I've actually only once ever sort of quote unquote signed off on a patient taking growth hormone. And he was a patient who came to me having been on growth hormone for many years at a very low dose. I mean, he was taking two IUs, one IU. He was taking one actually. Okay. Um, and he had, he had a very low IGF and he was, he, he argued that he'd, he'd never been clinically tested for growth hormone deficiency, but he was of pretty small stature. And, you know, he just said, look, I've always had a low IGF. And, and so I, you know, sort of take GH and we boosted and we did an experiment. So that was all happening before, you know, he was under my care. We did an experiment, took him off it. And sure enough, he never really bounced back. So either he had become sort of resistant to it or, you know, he, he that was his baseline. So, you know, he's back on that dose now. Um, but, but other than that, I've never looked at a patient and said, God, your IGF is too low. We can't raise it. That, that's, that's an easy thing to do. If someone's at the 10th percentile and you want to get them up. Um, the bigger issue clinically to me is what do you do for someone who's persistently elevated? What do you do for somebody who is persistently at the 90th percentile? They're persistently two standard deviations above their age appropriate level. Should we do anything about it? That's the first question. I mean, I really don't know the answer. This is, I, I find these data to be far more complicated than they're made out to be. Um, and I think that's sort of what Rhonda and I talked about. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to have Rhonda back on in the fall and we were going to, I think we just have to revisit this topic because I, I think IGF is very beneficial in the brain. Um, I've, I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that IGF is anything but positive in the brain. Um, it's very neurogenic. So if you could bathe your brain in IGF, I think your probability of getting Alzheimer's disease goes down. Um, IGF also tends to have real benefit around the heart, but it seems to, at high enough levels, have a detriment with respect to cancer. So I don't think we like answers to questions in biology that are sort of contingent, gray, if this, then that, over here is fine. But, but I, I do think that's a little bit about what's happening with IGF. And by the way, I think that's why the story isn't so clear. I think that's why um, we don't know the answer. The other thing is, you know, the dose probably makes the poison. You know, I think IGF is, at least my view is, it's probably the single most used PED uh, in all of sports because it's largely undetectable. Um, so, and, and talking to many athletes, like, I think there's a real benefit to it. I don't think it's as beneficial as testosterone, frankly, but I, I think if you're, you know, using testosterone as a PED is pretty hard. You have to really know what you're doing and how and when to take it, but you can sort of take growth hormone with impunity. And so I think you can, you, you'll definitely get a benefit from it. I think, especially on the sort of regenerative side and just the healing side, but it's sort of, it's always been interesting to me that we don't see more cancer in people who are clearly using GH. And you could argue, well, maybe it's got a long tail to it. But again, that's sort of counterintuitive with the principles of how a growth factor works. Growth factors work locally, right? So if you played in the NFL, if we just argue, which I think I could argue pretty convincingly that probably half the NFL is on growth hormone. So you, you, you take a bunch of people who are on half of them who are on growth hormone, which is, you know, whatever, let's say that's 10 X, the general population, and they'll, they'll do it for 10 years. Well, we have enough longitudinal data on these people to say, why is it that 20 years post NFL careers, 
the rates of cancer aren't alarmingly higher in retired NFL guys than in the general population. And although I've never looked for that particular study, I have to think somebody has, and that we'd know that answer. And if it's not there and the answer is, oh, but wait till they're 80, I'm like, well, wait, are they still taking GH when they're 80? Or are you assuming that something that happened in their 20s and 30s? So, so the whole story just doesn't sit well with me. I don't know what's going on. And therefore, I default back into less messing with the system, which is there's no easier way to reduce IGF than to fast. I mean, that's you, every time I do those fasts that we talked about, the sort of keto fasting keto thing, I'm always checking labs around them. And just seven days, well, keto usually drops your IGF alone yeah. just because you're protein restricted. But the seven-day fast will cut my IGF in half. So if I enter a fast with an IGF of 200, seven days later, it's 100. It's and do 90. you see that bounce back pretty good after no, the refeeding? No, it's actually, and it's funny. Like if, if, if I could time course one blood test, it actually, and I should do this, I should do, I don't know, every two weeks, just do an IGF level to follow that. Maybe even every one week, if I really want to be rigorous, I'd love to have one year of IGF data as it pertains to when I fast. I, sh I should actually do this. That's a ridiculous pain in the ass to do, but I should probably do it because my intuition is it takes two thirds of the time to my next fast to bounce back. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So let's say you start at 200, you end at 100. It takes two months to get back to 200 before you hit it again. I think that's okay. what's happening. So, so if I if I'm if I could discipline myself to do weekly IGF levels and pair it, you know, with my fast, that would actually be an awesome graph, and we could calculate the AUC area under the curve. Of that and i think that to me is probably the metric that matters most hell yeah i'd geek out on that all right Got it, what boys. is rapamycin it is just my favorite drug on the planet <laughs> <laughs> did we talk about rapa in we, hawaii we, we did talk about right? it in hawaii yeah i remember listening uh i forget where it was it was before you guys went to easter island but of course i listened to that with you and tim and, yeah, and yeah, one yeah. other guy so um so rapamycin is a drug that was discovered sort of by accident in the 1970s. So in the 1960s, an expedition from Canada went to this really remote island called Easter Island, which is the actual most remote place in the world inhabited by humans, meaning there is no place in the world inhabited by humans that is further from other humans than Easter Island. And they went there to do lots of things, but among them bioprospecting, you know, it's always interesting to go to a place that is so isolated and ask the question, are there, you know, bits of biology that are unique to this place? And in one of the volcanoes there, uh, where as legend had it, the inhabitants of this island who are known as the Rapa Nui would go when they were sick and a night of sleeping at the base of this volcano um, could like heal all of their ails. That, that's the local myth that they told us. I have no idea if that's true. But they, you know, drug up a bunch of soil from there and they brought it back to Montreal. I think this expedition was out of McGill University. And it kind of sat there untouched until the early 1970s when this guy named Seren Segal, um, a really, really smart chemist, started putzing around and he isolated this this thing. So there was a bacteria that they found inside that soil that also they'd never seen before. And the bacteria was called Streptomyces hydroscopicus. And the Streptomyces family is a super common family. We're covered in it as we sit here. But this hydroscopicus 
variant of the family had never been seen before. And he noticed that this bacteria secreted something, a discrete chemical that he was able to purify, and he, it had potent properties. The first thing he noticed is it was absolutely lethal to fungus, um, so much so that according to his son, Ajay, um, he uh, he thought he'd found the cure for athlete's foot. Like this was going to change the nature of athlete's foot. Um, and so you know, got, you got to come up with a name for these things. So he called it rapamycin because the Rapa Nui being the people of Easter Island, he wanted to sort of pay homage to the people of this island. And there's a very interesting story about it, which I won't go into great detail on, although it is one of my favorite stories in biology and how close we came to never knowing about this drug. So it's sort of mid seventies. He's He's tinkering this. I actually have all of his original papers, not the actual papers, but I've like I've gone back to archive libraries and I have the very, very first paper where he describes it. And, you know, these are just in boring, unsexy chemical engineering journal, you know, or chemistry journals where you sort of say, hey, I figured out a new molecule, right? Um, and he's got like a stock of it and um, he's even like giving it to one of his neighbors, apparently, who had athlete's foot and it cures it miraculously. And it's very anti-proliferative. So the pharma company that he was working for at the time um, basically goes through a round of downsizing and the Montreal uh, branch of this gets shut down. He's, his job is spared, but he has to move to New Jersey. So they order all non-viable compounds to be destroyed. And rapamycin at this time would be considered non-viable. It wasn't, they hadn't filed what's called an IND, an investigational new drug. They hadn't gone down a regulatory pathway with the FDA to do anything about it. So this was something that he was supposed to dismantle. And again, I've become friends with his son. And to, to hear it from his son, he was sort of like, yeah, there's no way I'm getting rid of this. So he and his son like brought a whole bunch of it in freezers and personally moved it to their new home in New Jersey. And it sat in their freezer for almost a decade. And then that company, that, that small company that he was at, gets bought by a larger company called Wyeth in the mid 80s. And Wyeth says, you know, okay, like it's, you know, new, new sheriffs in town. And so Seren goes to his bosses and says, hey, you know, tells them the story and says, do you mind if I get back to work on this? And they said, sure, knock yourself out. They're delighted, right? So sure enough, he gets back in the lab, starts working on this stuff and figures out that, yo, this stuff's got some magical properties. And in particular, it was highly um, destructive to a special type of immune cell called a T cell. Um, and to make a very long story short, in the late by the late 90s, 99, this drug gets approval by the FDA as an immune suppressant because it impairs this particular type of immune cell that's so important in fighting off organs. So if, if you get a kidney from Ryan, um, your body's going to quickly figure out that that's not your kidney. The immune system is just awesome at recognizing non-self. That's, that's what makes the immune system so beautiful. So it doesn't have to know that that's good or bad. It's just not you, and therefore I'm going to destroy it. And so drugs that can turn that down are imperative for people getting organ transplants. And so rapamycin is approved with much without much fanfare um, for that purpose. And it would stay in that largely niche role as an immune suppressant for transplant patients for a decade until 2009. Although I will say this, I've gone back and seen other reports of people in the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, 2006, 
where people started speculating that rapamycin might have superpowers, that it might actually be much more important than an immune suppressant. But I would say this didn't make front page of science tough until 2009 when a study came out that gave rapamycin to a series of mice that were 600 days old, both male and female. 600 days for a mouse, by the way, is like 60 for a human. So that would be considered like late middle age mice. And it should be worth noting that very few interventions tend to work when mice get that old. So if we all know that, we all know, I would say like, it is well known that calorically restricting mice, at least under the right conditions, can make them live longer. But it turns out that's not true if you wait till they're 600 days old. You can't, you can't fix the system once they're that far in. But rapamycin did a couple things that blew everybody's mind. The first is, at starting at this late in life, it extended life. The second thing is it did so both for male and female. That's a, that's a very big deal. Um, this study was repeated several times, NIH funded, and it kept coming to the same conclusion. Um, in fact, it has since been de demonstrated either directly or indirectly, meaning directly with rapamycin or indirectly gen where you do genetic manipulation to produce the same effect, that rapamycin extends the life across all lines of biology, basically spanning yeast to worms, flies, bacteria, mammals, etc. So that's kind of remarkable because again, to my knowledge, there's no compound that has ever demonstrated that. And they're working with like middle-aged dogs now, is that correct? Yeah. So a guy named Matt Caberlin, who I also had on my podcast last year is, and it's, it's really funny, just as a little footnote, remember how I was talking about that guy, Lenny at MIT, that was the big Sirtuin guy. That's the scientific founder of Elysium. Well, you know, Lenny, you know, one of the, one of the, I guess, uh, sort of impressive things that you always want to consider in a scientist is what is their pedigree, but more importantly, like what is their lineage? Like who have they spawned from their labs? And when you look at the people that came out of Lenny's labs, that Lenny's lab in the eighties and nineties, it's sort of remarkable. So Matt Caberlin being one, Brian Kennedy being one, David Sinclair being one, all of these people are absolute giants in the field of longevity. And to think they were all postdocs under this guy is, is pretty remarkable. So um, yeah, Matt is working on this with dogs, and uh, which is actually a brilliant model to do this in because companion dogs are not, they don't suffer the same limitations that sort of bred, you know, highly, highly, highly inbred mice are. Uh, inbred, you know, laboratory mice can be basically homozygous, homozygous at every loci, meaning they are like you, you have a, a hundred mice, they're all genetically identical, oh, okay. which is advantageous yeah. for some things, but it also speaks to just how genetically messed up they are, how pre-programmed they are to get cancer. Um, with the companion dogs, they're in our environment um, and they're a pretty good model. And so Matt is seeing really amazing stuff, especially with respect to cardiomyopathy, which is basically when their heart muscles get really weak. This accounts for, this is one of the three leading causes of death for a dog, uh, cancer being another one, and then um, accidents and euthanasia being the others. So, um, that, you know, and, and I don't remember the exact details we talk about on the podcast. I think within 12 weeks, they were seeing an increase in ejection fraction in these dogs by 10%, not relative 10%, absolute 10%, which is, I mean, that's the difference between a dog that can barely do anything and a dog that can get up and walk around. 
So I think for this reason, a lot of people, myself included, believe rapamycin is probably the most interesting drug that we have today in our, you know, toolkit for longevity. And then of course it begs the question, well, how would you take it? Because we see the way patients take it who get transplants because it's still used very widely in the field of transplant medicine. And I think we pretty much know that's not how you want to take it if you're trying to get a longevity phenotype. Um, so there have been a number of studies that have indirectly looked at other ways that you could take it, for example, taking it sporadically. And so, so the question with all drugs is what's the frequency, what's the dose? Those two variables will give an infinite number of combinations. But, you know, I think we have a, a loose sense of probably what's in the ballpark of how to take it in terms of how often you should take it and how much you should take when you take it. And it's not without its side effects. Is your audience squeamish? No, go for it. 80% dudes. Look at that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those mouth sores are from rapamycin. Is that because you do it buccally? No. It just, it, it, um, so I bit my lip the other day. And normally, if you bite your lip, like you wouldn't feel anything, like it heals in a day. But because it's got some anti proliferative properties, it's just taking a long time for that to heal. So you, these, these aphthous ulcers are one of the side effects of rapamycin. Now, the good news is, you don't get them that often. You usually have to, for me, at least I have to traumatize the tissue and doing something as stupid as biting my lip was enough to do it. Um, but this thing's taken like, I mean, it's five days. So if I cut my shin on something, would it take longer to heal? That's a good question. I don't know. And, and I haven't appreciated that. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me actually if that, if that were the case, because again, it is anti-proliferative. Okay. And that would of course explain why at least in an adult, it could be a beneficial, you know, anti-aging platform. You'd have to question it. I mean, you know, I just, I'd have a very hard time making the case that a kid should be taking this uh, for any reason, just as I have a very hard time making a case that kids should be fasting or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a very small percentage of people. Well, let's shift gears to something that I, that, I mean, it's, it's no secret. Anytime I have somebody on the show who has some experience in this genre of uh of life I, I like to take a deeper dive here and feel free to go as as deep or as shallow as you want with but how how have psychedelics and mdma impacted you personally um i i mean i think profoundly i would place them in the category of uh things that uh i don't know it sounds it sounds a bit cliche but I, I sort of feel like you you it's impossible to say I owe my life to X, except for extreme circumstances. You know, you were stuck on a railroad track and a train was coming and someone came and physically grabbed you and picked you up off the track and you're about to be run over. You owe your life to that. But, you know, if I were to sort of list out all of the things that have had an impact in my life from people to insights to this and the other thing, I mean, I, I just have to place these, these agents, especially MDMA, but also psilocybin um, as, as, you know, just... I mean, it's hard, it's hard to describe what these things can do, especially when you're doing them in a way that I think you get the most out of them. I mean, yeah. I, I think many people listening to this will have taken MDMA in a sort of, uh, what's the word, like a, a recreational way or at a party or something like that. And unlike psilocybin, it's always a pleasurable experience. There's, I, I've never really heard of somebody take MDMA and have a negative experience from it. 
But I also don't think there's anything that's particularly lasting that comes from it if you're taking it at a concert or something like that. So what I'm talking about, and I know what you're talking about, is what are these clinical scenarios under which people take it with uh, an intention and, a, and, and some form of guidance and therapy that allow, that basically allows you to be opened up in a way that you can have sort of a therapeutic um, or healing relationship with either the person you're with or, or, or yourself. And in that sense, I, I, you know, I think when I was talking to Rick Doblin about this, I said, I, you could make the case, this is the single most important synthetic creation of humans, um, MDMA in particular, of course, psilocybin occurs in nature. Um, and it also, although less predictable, um, I, I think it's, if done correctly, I mean, just, Again, it comes back to sort of, that's why they get a special category in my, you know, we talked about how drugs and supplements and hormones, whether you're talking growth hormone, testosterone, statins, rapamycin, they're all lumped into one sort of bucket of my tactics of how I think about it. But these molecules actually go in a different bucket. They go in this emotional health bucket because that's really how I think of them as tools to, to heal. Uh, for me, first and foremost, to heal. Because I think most of us sort of get here with a bunch of scars on our back. Um, and, you know, most people are generally getting some benefit out of those scars. Um, but what I'm interested in understanding is, can you preserve the benefits that those scars gave you, but, but actually minimize some of the negatives that come along with it? Because very few lumps or scars are all upside and no downside. Um, and, you know, I think there's, um, there, there's a, there's the pendulum tends to swing on this stuff a lot. And I think a lot of people today have this view that all adversity is good. And, um, you know, we've coddled kids too much. And, and I, I, I think there's absolutely truth to all of that, but that that's also a very unnuanced way to approach this. There is genuine trauma that occurs in people's lives. There are generally things that occur in people's lives for which they begin to adapt. And those adaptations, which serve a protective role, become maladaptive as they get older. And so to me, these drugs become, and I don't even like to use the word drugs because it has such a negative connotation, these molecules, um, they just become a way to start to untangle that and say, look, a lot of good came from that experience, but I'm behaving in ways or experiencing things in ways that are not they're not in my best interest and they're not in the best interest of the people I care about. So how can I sort of go after those things? And, and, and these things just allow a portal into that world. Yeah. Those protective mechanisms that we carry with us for so long, they serve us probably pretty well when we're, when it's early on in life and we don't have our feet underneath ourselves, you know, teenage years, twenties, those kind of things. But at some point they stop being effective models for how to live. And it, it is, I mean, they are some of the best tools on the planet for that when done properly. Yeah. We, we spoke in Hawaii about um, what's happening in the research right now. And I'd like you to talk a bit about where you'd like to see it go versus how it's going now. For psychedelics. Comes, yeah, when it comes to studying this stuff. Well, you know, the, the, the organization that, uh, that Rick Doblin founded, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, they're just doing such amazing work. You know, Rick actually spoke at TED this year. That's a big deal. I mean, that's, it's hard to overstate what a big deal that is. This is not like your local TEDx. This is like, this is the TED stage, which is the biggest stage. 
Um, and Ted was very reluctant to have somebody stand up there and do that. That's, that's how uppity Ted still is. Um, so it was a really big deal for Rick Doblin to be able to get up there and talk about psychedelics. And I think it's just a testament to who he is and to the sort of steadfast nature with which he and his supporters, his board have, have sort of methodically gone down this path of going right to the United States government to say, look, we don't want to do this behind closed doors. We don't want to have to send people to other places to do this. We believe we are dealing with a molecule here that, a molecule here that can change the lives of anyone who's been traumatized. That's the indication they're going after is PTSD. And, you know, after spending a lot of time with Rick, I've come to realize just how sensible the government is trying to be on this. I think there was a lot of really bad stuff that happened in the mid eighties. And I think there were a bunch of really bad actors that had a completely irrational, idiotic response to MDMA. And that's when it basically became scheduled as a schedule one agent in 85 or 86. But I think within five to 10 years of that, most people in the government realized that was a mistake. And now it's a question of how do we create a template that says, how do we walk back those mistakes? Similarly, you know, let's look at what the definition of schedule one means. Schedule one implies some combination of the following. This has no medical benefit and this has a high potential for abuse. Have you ever once finished taking psilocybin and thought to yourself, I can't wait to take that again? <laughs> never. And I've never. never taken it back to back days. I mean, not a single time in my I, life. I, I mean, like it's, it's, it's the opposite of addictive. Like it is such a powerful experience that you need staggering amounts of distance between administrations of that, um, years in some cases. So there's nothing addictive about these things. Um, and furthermore, to suggest that they don't have medical benefit, well, in as much as you consider prevention of suicide, depression, uh, improvement of quality of life and relationships with others, if those aren't medical benefits, then I think we have to revisit the entire field of medicine. So um, just on first principles, these things do not deserve to be in the schedule one bucket. Even cocaine is not a schedule one drug. Cocaine is a schedule two drug which means we all acknowledge it's highly addictive, but we at least acknowledge there's one medical benefit to cocaine, which is in anesthesia, nasal anesthesia. So um, the only drawback of MAPS is it's a nonprofit and therefore it hasn't had the, the resources to pursue this the way you could pursue it if you know Pfizer wanted to throw its muscle at it. But that said, the phase three, so in pharma you have, you know, you file what's called an IND and then you do phase one testing, which is to determine the safety. So that's been long done. So we now know MDMA is completely safe. And it's, it's you know, I, when I interviewed Rick for my podcast, we which isn't out yet, so I don't know when this will air, but, but, you know, that'll be out sometime this summer. I mean, he goes into great detail about the total chicanery and bullshit that went into all of the mythology around the toxicity of MDMA causing Parkinson's disease and all this stuff. I mean, those papers were actually retracted. It's not just that they were oh, we think they're right, but maybe more evidence is against it. No, no, they were demonstrated to be patently false and forcibly retracted out of the medical literature. That's how wrong they were. So, you know, again, the dose makes the poison. I'm not suggesting that you could take all the MDMA in the world and be fine, just as I'm not suggesting you could take all the Tylenol in the world or all the alcohol in the world or all of the everything in the world and be fine, rapamycin included, right? But 
when this drug is taken in the way that it's being used in the therapeutic setting, I mean, it's profoundly safe. The phase two trials then demonstrated how efficacious it was, meaning how much benefit it provided. And now the phase three trials are expanding that. That's the way drugs have to be tested. So phase three, you test efficacy, but in a more rigorous manner, in a larger manner. So if I could change one thing, I would just make it faster. But I believe that we're very close, probably a year away from compassionate exemption use and probably, oh, I, I don't want to misspeak, but maybe three years away from, um, you know, a, 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 basically a descheduling of this. Um, and, I, and, and psilocybin is sort of right on its heels. And again, the question with all these molecules is what's the indication? I mean, the people who are supporting this research have to make complicated decisions, which is you want to pursue the right indication. That's the name of the game in the, in the pharmaceutical, you know, FDA landscape. So, you know, if you pick the wrong indication, you're hosed. So if you decide psilocybin is a great drug for erectile function and it's not, well, you just spent a ton of money and a ton of time to demonstrate something that's wrong and you're not going to get FDA approved and you're right back to the beginning of the line. I mean, that's not entirely true, but that's sort of directionally the case. So, so I think with, with MDMA, it's pretty clear that PTSD is the uh, indication. And then of course, the question is, what's the best indication for psilocybin? Is it um, you know, smoking cessation, alcohol cessation, where it has profound efficacy? Is it recalcitrant depression? So drug resistant depression. So people who have depression to many, many drugs, is it end of life issues? I think they have decided it is not going to be the end of life indication though. Those data are, I mean, Staggering. Sta yeah, there it's, 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 it's hard to believe. So I think it's exciting. I mean, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I think about this stuff through the lens of my own kids actually. And I think like, I love the fact that by the time my kids are into their twenties, we'll have a totally different way that we interact with these molecules and they won't have to do things behind closed doors or something like that. There'll be a, there'll be a, a way to, you know, do this sort of white glove. Um, and that just means that, in, at least for my hope, is there'll be less suffering. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a beautiful hope to have. And we see a lot changing now. And I think it's, you know, in comparison and contrast to the 60s, which I wasn't around for, it, it looks like we have uh, a degree of care behind that. So the same mistakes aren't made twice. Yeah. Um, well, I know you got to run, but let's let's I want to leave the listeners with something that has had a huge impact on your life. And something that's had a huge impact on my life but i want to talk a little bit about before when we'll leave i'm going to play this for people at the end of this podcast this is water by david foster wallace how has that resonated with you what what is listening to that why why do you continue to listen to that yeah i listen to it all the time and i love opportunities to share it with people which is probably how it came up when we were in hawaii i think Kyle hadn't heard it, right? Truman, yeah. Yeah, I think some, uh, yeah. And so I think it was like, anytime I'm around someone and it comes up and they strike me as someone who's thoughtful and introspective and receptive, which of course, anyone who knows Kyle knows, of course he is. Um, it's like a perfect excuse to spend 24 minutes listening to what I consider one of the most important, well, what I would argue is the greatest commencement speech ever given, but arguably one of the most important speeches period ever given, which was, an obscure little commencement speech given in 2005 at Kenyon College by the writer David Foster Wallace. Um, it's hard for me to talk about it only because I don't know what to say without, the, it's hard to say much more than what he says, right? He just yeah. says it so well. For me, it's, 
it's something where the first half dozen times I heard it, because I was not in a mindful practice of meditation yet, I understood what he said, but I wasn't equipped with a tool to practice it. And I think the difference is now I at least have a tool to practice what he's talking about. And so, so there's, there's, you know, when I think about how emotional health matters and I think about all the different pieces of the puzzle, this is water is in and of itself kind of a piece of the puzzle. It's, it's actually examining that talk over and over again, both for the claims that he makes about us as individuals, which I think it's very important to always remember. You know, he talks about how none of us are atheists. We all have gods. And I think about that all the time, which is who are my gods? What are my gods? Um, because I don't go to a church to worship a god, but I do worship a lot of gods. I worship intellect. I worship my body. I worship, you know, material things. Um, and it would be wonderful to say that none of the above are true, but I'm not able to say that. So by knowing that, I allow myself to keep those things in check. I mean, it's a silly thing, but it's like I've really... I've almost embraced sort of the the loss of part of my physique, you know. I don't train as hard as I used to. You know, I like the the, the I work with, you know, the girls I work with, they all they get a kick out of like how obsessed I used to be about be, always being able to see the veins on my abs, right? And I was like <laughs> it became like a running joke at the office, right? It was like, dude, if you eat that, you're not going to be able to see your ab veins tomorrow. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I haven't seen the veins on my abs in years now. And it not only does it not bug me, but I actually think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing for me to stop being so attached to this image of myself, which I know what it's about. Like I understand what demons are being fed and I can trace them all the way back through my life. So that's one part of the talk that I find incredible. Also, I think just this idea that he is so he is so powerful and, and makes such a great case for stating the obvious, which is every experience we have is living the world through our own eyes. It's, it's right now I'm sitting in this room. Everything I've experienced in the last two hours is looking at you from where I am and seeing everything from my point of view, how I'm perceiving the temperature, how I'm perceiving, you know, what we're talking about, all of these other things. And when you extrapolate that to just your interaction with the world and you stop and you remind yourself that no one else is experiencing this moment or any other moment the way you are because no one else is inside you. And that has to bring a little bit of humility. It's, it's, it's what allows me to at least 10% of the time pause when I'm being a dick and realize, oh, there might be another way to think about this. There might be another way to view this. That other person could have a totally different point of view that I'm not able to appreciate because I'm not in them. And that kind of humility, I think, is a big part of not being miserable, which I just think, for lack of a better word, is just, or lack of a better term, is sort of a, it's a laudable goal. It's just to not be miserable. And, and so we suffer. I mean, he describes it, he describes it effectively the same mantra as, as, what you know any any meditation student will 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 talk about which is you know we just suffer so much more in our minds than in reality okay oh, brother <laughs> thank you so much i really appreciate you coming on yeah, man. and uh getting to come out here and hang with you and shoot shoot the bow and just everything that's going on uh 
you're somebody when I first got into podcast, they wanted you to have on. It means a lot to me. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Well, we have The Drive with Peter Atia. That's your podcast. Obviously, this show notes going to be littered with links to different episodes of that. Uh, where can people find you online? Um, most of it is just through the, through the website, peteratiamd.com. And that'll link to, you know, whatever social and the podcast and all that stuff. Yeah. Awesome, brother. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. Thank you guys for listening to the show. Today was sick. Uh, I've been waiting since the day I recorded this to release it. And, uh, that's one of the reasons I've gone to two episodes a week was simply because I did not want to be done at the end of this year. Uh, all the way through the first half of 2020. I don't want people to have to wait six months for their episode to air. Peter Atia is um, just a phenomenal, phenomenal human being who is constantly learning. He is a teacher and truly still embodies a student's mind. And that's something that resonates with me very deeply. I hope you guys enjoyed the show as much as I did. Make sure you check out Peter Atia online. We've linked to his social media in the show notes. And if you haven't started listening to The Drive, please do so. It will change your fucking life. It is one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to personally, The Drive with Peter Atia. Thank you all for tuning in. And as always, 10% off all supplements and food products at onnit.com slash Kyle.